given to me by Woody Shaw, Sunship, Dizzy, and John Kahn, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my music heroes. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Of 2919 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show on Power Talk 1210 KEVT Sourie to Tucson. Thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And it is my honor to bring in one of the most gifted and unheralded drummers in this country's history, Rick Kintanall. Welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor and a surprise to be here. Oh, man. That's what I love doing the most, man. My show has been. Uh, fueled by the unsung characters and um, and uh, looking into your history and what you've done uh, up to the current day, it's uh, it's really quite an honor to, to talk to you, man. So thanks for making the time. So uh, obviously you knew I play with Malo. That's played. That's why you played that piece. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oi, Mama. Uh, yeah. Yeah, All no, right. I mean, it's kind of hard to... Uh, I guess that would be the obvious question to starting a little bit uh, forwards before backwards, but, um, you know, Rick, how, how do you, how did you find a way to get your own individual voice into a rhythm section that included bongos, congas, timbales, and then your trap set? I, I, I just, I think for a lot of younger artists out there, um, well, a lot of that ethnic percussion has been stripped out of the live context, but I just would like you to talk about how you, were able to get your own voice in there? I, I guess the honest answer is I had no preconceived concept of what was supposed to happen. I was just, I just played and I jumped in. I mean, that, that particular rhythm section was incredible with Francisco Agobela and Leo Rosales. So, I mean, I had come from a, a jazz and rock f- format before, you know, before I joined that band. So when I got the gig with them, I just played. Right. And interestingly enough, we butted heads a few times in the rhythm section, you know, saying that maybe I was playing too much. So I had to learn, you know, I had to learn over time to be my voice, say what I had to say, but also respect everybody else's part in the whole tapestry of what makes a really great, um, you know, rhythmic concept. It's a tapestry that happens, you know. So it's just, for me, it's always been just deep listening, just listening and loving music, loving the drums, and just and just listening. And the music, you know, by Grace has kind of always showed me what to do. You know, could you? And could, most of the time, it's worked out. Could you give us? A, could you give an example of one of these uh, uh, kerfuffles, so to speak, uh, when Aguabella would look over at you and and tell you to quiet down? How you dealt with your ego 
and then ultimately how how you worked worked yourself into the situation. Um. Well, I, I remember one one argument we got in uh, backstage one day where Francisco was was saying that you know that I was playing too much and and my ego kicked in and I said, well, how come you get to play so much and I don't? But you know that's that's just youth and young arrogance, you know. So we worked through that and I listened and then I just started listening more. Um, uh, boy, how did I work through that? You know, I just uh, I just. Main thing is having respect for other musicians than for the other musicians you're playing with. And interesting, the thing that I've been learning more—I mean, I've been playing a long time now, so this is like we're talking about kind of ancient history for me now. <laughs> what I'm learning now is just really even deep, deep listening, deep listening to the rhythm and the power of the drums, and the music will always show you what to do. And, and a lot of times, I'm learning as I get older, less is more. You know, there's more power and simplicity and, and, you know, playing what's appropriate and not, you know. I mean, again, when we're all growing up, we, you know, we're developing chops and we're, you know, listening to whoever and trying to get all our stuff in, you know, when we can. And that's, that's just part of the process of growing up and maturing as a, as a human being and a musician, you know. But at a certain point, that the ego drops, you know, maybe if you want to keep, keep the gig, too. That's a big part of it. <laughs> Already having a ball with Quintanilla. I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, I mean, just to give the audience a little bit of background, I, uh, I'm a voracious record collector, and uh, I happened to, you know, stumble upon uh, the San Francisco label, um, which at a period of time in our history, you referred to it as ancient history, but I think it was just the most unbelievably vibrant time. Culture. Rich. It was a rich time. It was a rich time, and um, I find this really peculiar album named Vic, uh, Victoria. And, um, oh, wow. and the thing is this, though, I had, I've, I've interviewed Garibaldi. I, I mean, it seems like 25 times. I think it's only been about two or three, but, um, he, you know, I'm always fascinated by him because, you know, he has just held down this gig with tower of power for so long and he never really was, he was not uh, a Jim Keltner or a Hal Blaine kind of guy could have been maybe, but he was not a studio cat. And I asked him, I said, one time I said, did did you ever get into a situation where you played on a studio album? And he mentioned this chick. He just called her a chick. It was a, it was a chick album, and he got, you know, without getting into detail, it didn't work out. And I found this out, and he said, he, he said it was with Herbie Hancock. <laughs> and I said, this is fascinating. And then I find this album, Victoria. And yeah. I look at it, and I say, my God, there's Herbie, there's the chick, and Rick Kintanall. And so I, I texted Garibaldi. I said, have you, have you, have you seen, you know, where's Rick Kintanall at? He's like, dude, we were just hanging out here two weeks ago. And I said, let me, oh. let me connect with him. So that's how it happened, man. Wow. Yeah. So, so it's deep. It goes real deep. <laughs> God uh, bless you, man. That's awesome. Yeah, man. And, uh. But, How do I get a copy of that? I'd love to hear that again. The, you give me your address. I'll, I, I got like three P. I got it on vinyl. Um, I only collect vinyl. Right. You can't even get that on CD. It's one of the most trippy, cool albums. I don't think there's drums on every track. Do you remember? Yeah. Do you remember getting the call for that gig? How did that worked out? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was uh, just to back up a little bit. I mean, from college, I ended up playing, <clears throat> leaving college, and I joined, joined the Don Ellis band. So I got to do that for about wow. a year and a half, Ooh. and that was fantastic obviously and then i started getting some studio work in la known as like the rock drummer from san francisco 
interest I did a Ray Conniff recording session, which is pretty pretty trippy. But <laughs> hold on, <laughs> yeah. I, this is really cool. You you were uh, a, you were in the studios. At what what years were these? Um, this is like late sixties. Like 69, 70, something like that, you know. Was it like at, uh, what is it, Great Western Studios? Like, which which studios did you... Well, that was with CBS, because that was like through through Don Ellis was hooked up with CBS, so it was mainly the CBS studios. So then anyway, I had, when Don Ellis, the band was awesome, and then Don started, you know, winning more into a rock... I was on the album with him called Don Ellis Goes Underground, and it was it was a cool album, but I wasn't liking musically where it was going, and again, short-sightedness. I mean, that was just a phase he went through, and he went on to do absolutely incredible things after that. But anyway, I left that, and I hooked up with this band in San Francisco called, it was called Indian Puddin' and Pipe. It was called The Pipe, and it was an awesome band. It was like a combination of Crosby, Stills, and Nash and, and uh, Chicago. <laughs> yeah. And Dave, David Rubinson, who was one of the top producers in the Bay Area, loved us. He said, oh, you're one of the best bands you know, happening right now. But our manager had been involved in a lot of lawsuits with Jefferson Airplane, Moby Gray, Beautiful Day. You know, so nobody in the business wanted to touch the band. So that was a big heartbreak. But anyway, through that connection, I hooked up with David Rubinson. So he's the one that called me to do this recording session with Victoria. Yeah, I mean, I, I some, sometimes I crave hearing Garibaldi outside of the Tower of Power, and I would, and but yet Kentonall just you fit the bill on this album. I mean, it's more of a psych folk album. Who do you mind? Who who was your manager that gave you the bad rap? Uh, that was Matthew Cates. So you're telling me that despite the pipe, uh, putting pipe being a re, I mean, Rubinson, you know, I interviewed him maybe a month ago. We got part two coming up around Thanksgiving. Oh, really? Yeah, awesome. he, he's out in France right now. But, uh, I mean, that guy, you know, take it or leave it, you know, probably an abrasive character, but a great, great year, great taste in music. And you're telling me that because of all the drama by your manager, nobody wanted to even deal with the music itself. Yep. Wow. Because two of the guys in the band had sealed, you know, con- had c- contracts with Matthew, and I, you know, I didn't, you know. So I was that was a, again a really painful time because the music was so great, and, and we even now check this out. This doesn't happen much anymore, but Don Ellis loved the band. So one day he was playing at Mr. D's in San Francisco, and he invited our band to sit in with his band during the during the show. Oh, I mean, and, this is and, this is what I'm talking we, about. Yeah. We played, and then Don, like you know, spontaneously had horn arrangements going behind the band. George Duke was on keyboards with Don's band at that time. So, what year was it, that? What year was that? Boy, you, you know, I should have done more homework here, but I'm thinking this <laughs> it's not a fluff interview. Like around, you know, 70-ish, you know, I'm thinking around 70, 71. Yeah, well, the Underground, that Underground album, I never knew you were on that. I, you know, can you, I've I've been interviewing the Jazzers, I mean, since I started my show in January 2011, and you're probably about the 550th guest that I've had, but the, Don Menza was with, with, um, with Don Ellis, and man, he was playing straight ahead uh, I don't know, you want to call it post-bop. He was really playing just straight ahead. And then Menza got out of the Army, and he met up with with Don, and he was playing 13 over 7, time signature 15 over 9. It was freaking him out. 
And he didn't, <laughs> he didn't want to deal with it. Were you, did you, you were one of these odd time signature cats that was playing drums with him? Is that, I mean, how, is that true? I, I, well, yes. And at the time, you know, Ralph Humphrey, great jazz drummer, oh, LA love, studio guy. Heavy, heavy he was cat. the main drummer in the band. And sure. Ralph and I had gr- grown up, you know, in Castro Valley, California, played a lot together in high school. So, when an opening happened, and you know Don is looking for another drummer, he had we had three drummers in the band at the time, three drum sets and and uh, and percussion kungas. So three, it was, three drums. I was sets. one of the drummers. Oh. So Ralph Humphrey was the main guy. You know, I could play odd times, but Ralph was the master at it. You know, so with the really hard stuff, that was Ralph Ralph's turn to play. You know, um, <laughs> in a live in a live context, you had three trap sets on the stage. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, just for someone from my generation, I was born in 78. I mean, can you talk about how you guys work that out? Uh, I mean, were you all playing uh, the track? I mean, who, what was your role with, I mean, maybe Ralph was, was holding it down, but what were you guys, were you all three playing at the same time? We had different percussion parts we were playing or different parts, drum set parts. You know, so Ralph was like the main guy, and we would just reinforce it with, you know, sometimes just different percussion things or different, yeah, different parts we had worked out, you know. And the the big, you know, and the big, whenever things got really big, everybody would kick in. So the thing that, I mean, that band was so great. And whenever that band played, it was so exciting. People would would stand up and cheer. I mean, it was so exciting, you know. So obviously the power of a lot of drums kicking a big band uh, made that happen, and then we had, of course, the, you know, the big finale, you know, with the drum drum solos, and each guy would take a turn, and then we'd have a whole section where I had a whole thing worked out where we'd all play together, and then, and then the big band would kick back in, and so it was, you know, part playing and and some unison, but mostly part playing at that time, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, any tapes I could hear of that stuff. I you were the only album you were on was Underground. Were you on any other other album? Yeah, no, just that one. Yeah, because I'm—I mean, you're a mercurial cat, man. I mean, I mean, you look up uh, Quentin all on on all music. I mean, there's some amazing stuff that you did, but I think there's even more out there that you haven't even gotten credit. This Ray Connor thing is a is a is a revelation to me at this point. Yeah, well, I you know, I wouldn't draw too much attention to that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it worked, you know. Where did you Where did you uh, grow up, though? I grew up in Castro Valley, California. Did you wind up? Then did you go to the Pacific Northwest first, or how, how did? Tell me about your your early travels or your first real professional gig. Uh, my real my first professional gig was like I think in the eighth grade, and we had a little dance band, and my dad drove us to the gig, and we got paid for it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I guess I, more I, to the but more after that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so you know, I mean. I, Again, like that period was so rich. I played with a band called Magnificent Seven, which there's another really famous Magnificent Seven. But we we, we were a local uh, R&B band, and actually Rufus Miller was our singer, and he was turned out to, he ended up being the first singer with Tower of Power. So we all sort of knew each other. But I mean, that Magnificent Seven was kind of the first you know, working band I was playing with, and you know we do that time. I mean. There was so much music, and I remember one of my favorite memories of that was like Sly Stone was playing in the clubs at that time, and there was this club called Frenchies in Hayward, California, and that club had two bands, so our band played opposite Sly Stone for you know a few weeks. Uh, but actually, when they when they were in the studio, actually recording, dance to the music. So, 
That is you know, Greg Rico. I've interviewed him a couple of times. What I mean, oh, I, he's great. Uh, dude, and I, he, before that, I was like more of a jazz guy. I didn't think I didn't take rock and you know pop drumming that seriously. But when I heard Greg, he blew my mind. And then after that, when I'm hearing another big influence in the rock world was Carmine Apice. Was when I heard Vanilla Fudge, it was like holy right. smokes. You mm-hmm. know? Absolutely. No, this is uh, where the pocket of Jake Feinberg lies. I, I'm curious when you were. If you could, for the audience, uh, I mean, I know what when Garibaldi went to L.A. in the mid-'80s, uh, it was an un- unsatisfying experience, and it had, yeah. be- it had become kind of a, um, a mercenary scene. But in the fertile time that we have been talking about, could you talk about Southern Ca- the viability of Southern California, the live music scene, uh, the opportunities to play, whether it was still a mercenary scene at that time, and then juxtapose that to when you moved to the Bay Area and that freedom sound of, of, of San Francisco? I, I actually never, I always lived in the Bay Area, so I can't wow. really speak that much. I lived in L.A. a little bit, but I didn't really, I can't really speak, you know, intelligently about the whole scene and everything that was happening at that time. Even, Most even, of my experience yeah. was in the Bay Area and based out of that, you know. Even, the, even as a rock session drummer, you just drive down? In, yep. Uh, interesting. Okay, so you you grew up in the Bay Area. Um, can you talk about? Did you ever get to go over to Jimbo's Bob City at all? No. Where was that? It was that was in uh, I want to say it was the North Beach area. I mean, it was one of these clubs that uh, uh, it was the first real club where um, you cats like Dick Burke and Jerry Grinelli and uh, you know Pony. <laughs> Cats would come in there, and you would get up on the like Miles or 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 Philly Joe with with Miles would come in, and then like some of the band would get off the stage, Miles would stay on, but Cats could come and sit in. You could be underage, and you wow. you get up on the bandstand, and if you could play, they'd play with you. If you couldn't, they'd just walk off the stage. You know, it's like Pony Poindexter would come in there, but that was sort of the real. What would you say? Uh, I mean, were you doing the on-Broadway with, with Magnificent Seven? Were you playing, uh, I'm just trying to... We were to... doing, you know, club, you know, basically, yeah, bars and clubs. You know, the, the the main jazz club I got hooked up with during that time period was Keystone Corner. Remember that place? Well, I've interviewed Todd Barkin quite a bit. You're talking about after it went from Herrera to where it became a tr- strictly jazz club. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, tell me a little bit about your experience with the Keystone, because I've... You know, you, you, you read the books, uh, you look at the pictures, the tapestries, and just the idea that Woody Shaw and Bobby Hutcherson could be coming in for t- seven straight days at a time. Yep. Can yep. you talk about a, a, a memorable experience, especially uh, with the cast like Elvin or, or, or Art Blakey, guys that you got off on, jazzers that you really uh, got off on uh, when you were younger? Well, yeah, I got to see all those guys in that club up close, and it was it was the thing. One of the things I really loved about that club and that time period was that jazz was like the music of the musical warriors, you know. So when guys stepped up to do a solo, it was like they were stepping up to you know for a transformative experience and took the audience with them. You know, you start off with the solo with the cool lines and then the build and build. The point, and in those days, everybody in the audience was listening. And when it got to like the peak experience, people were cheering. It was like a victory of the soul for everybody in the room. That's one of the main you, things I, are, I remember you, about that whole place. And I remember standing right behind McCoy Tyner when he was playing with Alphonse Muzon. 
oh. and feeling like a force there that felt like the Yosemite Falls or, you know, <laughs> you know, incredible well, life force and energy. And all the musicians at that time that came through there, they were all like really just going for it, you know, and in an environment that was rich and fertile and everybody wanted to hear them be successful in the moment. I, just, Best, well, I guess I can say that. No, I mean yeah. you're you're you are uh, maybe unbeknownst to you, you're 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 a poet as well. I mean this is just <laughs> this is I mean this is what my show is about because music has become about has become pacification. It is not about this what you said the the musical warrior mentality. But I want you to talk about the idea of the first time, and it could have been with these cats when you realized that there was a let there. There, there's a real musical language, and, and I, I part of the reason I do my show is I don't want that to get lost on my daughters and future generations because of the emphasis on digitization. The idea that the drum is a communicate communi- is you have the ability to communicate through the drum, and yeah. and you can transcribe Elvin Jones solos, but the transcendent quality of music was that the first time that that you understood that. That's when I really started to become conscious of it. Absolutely, you know. You know, I don't have a lot of stories, but I, one of my favorite. I, I, when I was in New York, I saw Elvin Jones at the Village Vanguard, and I got to hang out with him for a little bit. You know, and you know, and again, the wise master, like he said, you know, he said, you know, all these young guys come up and say, you know, I can play you better than you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and he said, yeah, he says, but you can't copy the spirit. And that was his lesson to me. He says, listen to the spirit. Listen to your heart. You know, play your heart. Nobody can copy that. Find your own voice. Then he gave me a hug, and I swear to God, my chest was on fire. His life force was, like, unbelievable. Yeah, when I interview, I've done two interviews with Bill Cosby, and uh, he used to take, uh, before his, the world fell in on him, and he used to, uh, take, he used to take Camille after his stand-up comedy routine, he would open for someone like Ramblin' Jack Elliott of the Gaslight, and then he'd roll over to uh, see the Coltrane Quartet and uh, with Camille before she was his wife. And uh, and every time at intermission, Elvin would come over soaking through his suit and giving her a big hug, you know, soaking wet, you know. And he wasn't, you know, it's it's hard to look. But it's it, it, it pains me to, to, to see what's happened to, to Kaz because he... Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, he was a patron of this incredible music. I, you know, the more cats I talked to, though, um, you said they were going for it. The guys were going for it. That was what you said. Yeah. Uh, what, what does that mean? Um, I just, you know, deep listening and reaching deep within your spirit and, you know, tapping into the energy and, and just calling forth like this, the, I mean, I don't know exactly how to say it, you know, just calling, calling forth, getting out of the way and letting the music really come forth, you know, and just going for it, you know, just playing, playing as hard as you can, listening, you know, getting as deep into it as you can. You know, it's like it's, it's you know, you really feel the meditative quality uh, when great players are playing. You know, that's the other thing. You can hear guys play and play a lot of notes and they're not saying anything. Then you can hear some guys, and all of a sudden the language is there, and you really feel them talking to you. Well, what is that? It's hard to really define, but I mean, it's 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 a a spirit t- 
magnetized an energy, a pure energy that that's speaking through, you know, as the music, and it connects with the with the listener, you know, and that's that's love, man. <laughs> that is, and one of one of the L's on my show is love. So, I did you? Could, could <laughs> I hope you I'm talk? not rambling too much. No, I, I, rather, no this is, I mean this is a stream of consciousness. So. No, I mean I was going to. It's getting you out of your normal mindset. That's all. What the show, what the Jake Feinberg show is about. But the thing is, um, you know, the first L of my show is leadership, and I yeah. just wanted you to talk about uh, some uh, unorthodox leadership styles that influenced you. I don't know if you were a leader of a band ever, but uh, just, you know, the nonverbal uh, leadership styles. I remember talk when I interviewed Jack Dejanet, and he, uh, Elvin, uh, I think, uh, didn't show up for the last set in Chicago. Uh, Jack had been playing locally for a while. And um, the club owner told Train, he said, hey, you know, let this guy play with you. It was with McCoy, Jimmy Garrison. And um, Train didn't say anything. He didn't say yes. He didn't say no. He just looked at him and they went up and they and they burned. And he said that that uh, Train, uh, he said, uh, Dijonette said that, that, you know, every set you got higher and higher and higher <laughs> to the point where people were literally, you know, it was like a sanctified church. People were having out-of-body experiences. But... I guess my point is that he didn't use any language, no verbal language. And I'm just curious about an unorthodox leadership style that maybe had an effect on you or something that you can give to, to other artists uh, because we live in a very, clearly we're talking right now, it's just a very verbal time right now. Uh, well, that's a good question. <clears throat> I mean, what comes to me is... is um the project that I'm doing now with my my wife, my wife and I have a sound healing project. You know, let me back up a little bit. In my early twenties, when I was in the San Francisco scene, there was always this desire in me to play music that made help people see how beautiful they are. Kind of not how great I am, but made people feel beautiful. Mm. So I, you know, as far as a leadership thing, I think that's been one of the main motivations throughout my musical path was, you know, always kind of like listening and following, trying to find that music, and ended up playing with, the, you know, different combinations of people where it came together, and it was really great, but nothing really stuck for, for, for a variety of reasons. Everybody had different stuff to do, not really willing to commit totally to the project, and, you know, blah, 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 life goes on. But so, but I, that's been like, as a leader, that's been my main feeling is like, I know that there's going to be this music that's going to be really great. And it's going to, you know, it's going to be the fulfillment of my spiritual essence, my musical essence, and it's going to like affect people in a really beautiful way. So I've kind of like just, you know, held that my whole life, watched, always kind of like tried different things. And finally, it's really coming into place now where I'm, I'm hearing, you know, music that I never knew was possible. My wife and I, we have a great percussionist, John Marshall, who plays with this world-class tabla, you know, Eastern, you know, uh, percussion, yeah. Yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. a shakuhachi player, Carl Spicer from New York City, who was also a great jazz bass player. Oh so this God, combination yeah. of people, I couldn't have possibly imagined. <laughs> but it was like... It's the fulfillment of something I knew was supposed to happen. You know what I mean? Absolutely. No, you're, you na you're nailing it. Keep holding it, believing it, and then, you know, and then the, the right people will show up, you know? So, you know, and, and the music we're doing now is really great, and it's all 
totally improvised. When we go to a concert, we just drop in and and play, and, and amazing music happens. So it's like, you know, uh, I did, anyway, it's great. Uh, so leadership-wise, I just say, uh, you know, I've never really been the leader of a band. I've put some projects together, but it was always sort of collaborative. But um, as far as, like, a leader, I would say that this, I feel, uh, I feel, because I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling here. I'm leading and following at the same time. You don't I mean? don't uh, don't say you're rambling anymore. Okay, you're doing. Fun. Okay. You're, you're having, we're having a ball. Listen, the thing is, okay. okay. So it's clearly evolved over the last forty five plus years. This healing music. Um, when you first started it, genuinely, how would you try to to make audience uh, to make music for the audience? Can you can you go a little bit deeper? Was it based on their body language, and you could tell they were getting off on it, or how did that work early on? Not as a more seasoned player. Okay, well, early on, I remember sometimes playing, um, I think one of the first times I really became aware of it was like when I was playing in a bar, you know, the Pelicans, Rusty Pelican in Alameda, California, playing with this band. And I remember feeling my energy filling the room, not the sound, but I could just feel my energy going out, and it was connecting with everybody. And then when that happens, you can just sense that, okay, what I'm doing is making, you can see it and feel it happening with people. You can feel when the connection's happening, and you can feel when it's not. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that's sort of when it started, and then it's it's definitely grown from there. But, I mean, I play with a band now, Otis and the Hurricanes, which is a smoking Louisiana, you know, funk band out here in, in Connecticut. And it's the same energy. It's like when we're playing, you could feel the energy in the room, and I can feel, obviously, the grooves are making people dance and making people smile. So, you know, it's the groove, but it's, but it's more than that. It's like it's an energy and a connection that happens with everybody in the room that's, that's very palpable, you know. We have a game on this program, Rick, called Name That Tune. I'm going to uh-huh. put, put this in, and then we'll come back and break it down, Okay. Okay. okay.
Nick on the Jake Feinberg Show, sponsored in part by the Stereo Hospital, the Circle Tree Ranch, and Abbott Taylor Jewelers, and the Jewish Community Center of Southern Arizona. We thank them for their support. All right, Mr. Kentonall, what do you got for us, brother? That's spirit. You nailed it. Spirit by... Well, can I, I cheated. I looked on my iTunes. But... <laughs> <laughs> and that's all right. You know, we had already jumped the shark by talking about it, but um, as best you can, can you talk about... Uh, the cats in that band and how it organically how the band came together um, the the band started as West Coast natural gas up in Seattle and right. that's where Matthew was at and Steve Mack the guitar, the lead guitarist and Pat Craig the keyboardist um, were the main members, and then they they ended up moving down to San Francisco. And then I'm not exactly how the how the, how the whole band formed before I I found them. But <clears throat> uh, did they did they have it? Interestingly they... enough, yeah. I play when I played with Don Ellis's band. We played at uh, Basin Street West in San Francisco, and it was a smoking gig. And there was these two guys that came up to me afterwards and said, oh, man, you're really great, blah, 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 you know, because I had the double bass drum, the big solos worked out <laughs> and all that stuff, you know. <laughs> so then later when I found out this band, uh, band was looking for a drummer and I went to the audition, those were the two of the guys. It was Pat and, and Rex, one of the other guitar players in the band. So that was a, kind of a match made in heaven. Seems like that was the way, I mean, it, it seems so self-evident now with all the... Um, it seems I interviewed Floyd Sneed from Three Dog Night. That's how they found him, um, and and more. Just so many musicians that were supporting the music scene. Did they have a Did they have a trap drummer before Kentonal? They they did, and, yeah, and, 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 and he I'm wasn't not exactly yeah. sure what happened with that, but uh, it kind of worked out because man, when we start we played together, it was like it was heaven. It was so great because for me, it was a combination of. The music was great. It was like it was, you know, definitely rock, but it was also had big band qualities too, with the big band hits. And then seven guys sang, so the vocals were fantastic, and the music was very spiritually oriented. I mean, that particular song—that's the middle section, the first part. It's all chanting. You know, it's a big, magnificent. Although we didn't record it that well, and I feel bad about that, but that's another story. But, you know, the spirit so high man has been since time began, and loving and living two are the only one. Please don't apologize when you depend upon me. You know, those are kind of the words they were singing. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I was listening this morning, uh, just, you know, sort of in my own little meditative state, and I was just waiting for, you know, the, the rhythm to come in. And literally, the rhythm doesn't come in for about four and a half or five minutes. Right. It's, it's really... And we had played that way better live. You know, when we went into the studio, that was sort of like near the end of the band. It was like a lot of tension was going on, and, and I, you know, I mean, I'm grateful that we got what we got. My favorite cut on that is Shadow Larks. I think that's the one that best represents what the band was sounding like. And the other tunes are there, but we, we played them way better than that live, you know. So, But that's that's the way it goes sometimes, you know. No, it's, I mean, you know, uh, the question I have for you is um, because the lyrics are so powerful and emotive and it, there's so much introspection. And again, it, you could talk about the birds or the Grateful Dead or, Jeff, you know, it goes across the board. Right. Um, you can personalize it uh, and also expand on it from a macro point of view. I mean, how much did uh, did psychedelics play a role in? 
in the expansion or the com- or the combining of all these genres of music. Like you said, you had this soul and funk. I'm not sure if funk was even a part of the lexicon at that point, but you had funky blues, you had big band, you had... Yeah. Okay, I mean, can how much do you account for your psychedelic experience and your consciousness opening, and not just for, for the pipe, but just for that time period in general and the bands that were doing their thing? I mean psychedelic the music or the psychedelics involved? The, 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 the LSD. Yeah, I I did a little bit of mescaline. I never got really heavy into uh, really tripping, but it it uh, it had some effect, you know. And of course, marijuana at that time, you know, it just opened you up, you know, to to uh, you know. I guess the main thing it got you got the ego out of the way and, and enabled you to look at stuff differently. Now I don't recommend it, and there's better ways of doing it, but it definitely had a. It caused a shift to, uh, you know, shift in consciousness. It, 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 I say it caused, um, and I say this, it seemed to enable a shift in consciousness so you could just look at things differently and get a little bit deeper inside the music and inside the sound. Mm. I don't think I ever really did before. I mean, I, I played, but, but, you know, and I played a lot of good music, but there was another level of, you know, when you really get into meditating while you're playing. Where you, you know, all of a sudden you are the music, you are the sound. The, well, that's what that was. I'm leading into the next question because part of my show focuses on the metaphysical. And I, could you talk to the audience? Doesn't have to be that you were tripping out, but can you talk about an out of body experience uh, playing the drums uh, when you felt like maybe you were on the, uh, you you just didn't you were on the side of the stage and you were looking at yourself playing, but you were actually playing. <sighs> Okay, well, the first, the biggest one that comes to mind is I, I used to play with a friend of mine, Tim Rosencrans, and we'd just play, you know, there was this basement in San Francisco. We would just play just drums and sax. And again, we would go for it. I mean, just, you know, you know, drumming, you know. And right in the middle of one of those sessions where we were like just full bore energy, I became... I had this vision of becoming this lion, and my my mane was like the ocean waves, and I was ascending to the top of this mountain. And this is all while the music is still playing, you know. And he became like the phoenix, this firebird, and we were ascending to the top. We want, it was like kind of going to the, you know, the great mountain where the gods were, and we were going to, we wanted to commune with the gods. And then I fell short, didn't quite make it. Ended up back in an Indian village, <laughs> and my wife. Mana, which is a name for the life force, told me it's okay. You're going to make it, you know. And it was one of those sort of vision quests, life vision quests. Wow, this is great. And just, this was in a basement. And that happened yeah. while we were playing. Yeah, it was just one of those, you know, whoa, you know, totally trans transported to another place. So I got a glimpse. And interestingly enough, I mean, it's like that's that was one of the big markers for my life. It's like you know, keep going, just keep going. You're going to do it. Don't give up. Be patient. Just stay at it. You know. So that was that was the biggest one, you know. To be honest, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so, I mean it, 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 everyone's has different ones. I mean, you know, a lot of people uh, talk about, you know, um, you know. I, I just interviewed Larry Coriel uh, last week, and uh, it, it doesn't matter who they are. Um, you know, McLaughlin. A lot of the guys were looking to transcend. Uh, Absolutely. But 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 uh, alter consciousness without chemicals. You know, without Absolutely. without the hard. Absolutely. You know, so. Uh, that's what you're describing, and you know, for them though, it was it had more to do with, uh, you know, uh, for them it was Sri Chimnoy, uh, uh, gurus that uh, really helped them 
um, sort of, you know, yeah. With, without, without, and I mean, I'm not even talking about pot or LSD. I'm talking about more like heroin or coke or that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, the is there was I remember interviewing Michael Shreve and he was him and Carlos Santana when they were playing. You know, they were looking at their friends and they were these these people were dying all around them because of the drug use and, and yeah. it was like roadkill. And they wanted to, they were very interested in connecting with this type of jazz this burning spiritual jazz that was occurring yeah. at the time uh and they did that and because they didn't want to die right. and and uh you know i just wondered if you ever i guess if you could point to a time in your career doesn't have to be drug abuse but if there was a time in your career where you faced some adversity and um how, oh, you, how you were able to overcome it if you could give an example of that oh boy <clears throat> Oh, this could be a long story. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was playing in the Bay Area, you know, in the 70s, I had met this spiritual teacher because that was sort of one of the things. It was spiritual teacher time in planet Earth, you know. We met this teacher, and I was married at the time. And, um, well, I don't want to tell the whole the whole long story anyway. We ended up moving to Tucson, ended up leaving Tucson, coming back to here. Then she was killed in a car crash. So it was a vehicular homicide. So that was a a major blow in my life. And then then after that, I ended up coming out. That's how I ended up on the East Coast, coming out to study with this teacher. And then I had, you know, I was hanging in New York trying to meet people, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I needed to get grounded. I knew that I needed to get really grounded. So I started doing tree work. I worked for a tree company in New Jersey. Oh, wow. Yeah, and and I never stopped playing, but I wasn't playing. that. Actually, I played with a band called Yaska's Farm at that time, which played, you know, obviously the Woodstock stuff and the Jersey Shore. But anyway, <laughs> so I went through this you know, period of, like, you know, studying with the teacher, playing but then I started really losing myself, and I got involved in drinking, you know, like a lot of other people. And then it got to the point where, you know, I was, like, kind of ready to give up. I figured, okay, well, I had a good life, you know. It's about it. And actually, during that time, too, I had recorded an, an, an album of my original stuff. And when it was all finished, I said, hey, you know, this sounds pretty good. <laughs> you know? Right. Maybe, maybe I ought to stick around and see what happens, you know. And right. then... Some other things happened, but anyway, I woke up, you know, the, you know, like that, whatever that is, you know, they say hitting bottom or whatever that realization is for people, it occurs in so many different ways, but there's just a point where the spirit says, okay, I'm back, you know, it's time, it's time to wake up, it's, I, you've had enough of that, you know. Did you, and then, you think, I mean, Coriel, I just transcribed it yesterday and disseminated it on Facebook, but it was just a powerful story. I mean, it was the early 80s. He had already been in rehab four times. Mm. This was the fifth time. Um, and he said he, was, he thought he was going to die. You know, and yeah. at, the, at the time, uh, he was uh, collaborating with the guitarist Philip Catherine. And they were doing, uh, there was a lot of money on the table. There was a lot of opportunities for more records. And it was, he used the allusion to C.C. Sabathia, you know, the Yankee pitcher who just, you know, the time, he went into alcohol, AA, and, the timing was not great for the Yankees when he went in, but Larry just said, you know, for me it was, yeah, there was all this opportunity out there, and uh, I, I knew I, I had hit rock bottom. Um, uh, but would you account it to say that uh, uh, it was the, the 
the fun, the listening to this original music you made that that helped you, or or did this? And what is the teacher's name that you had? Well, the teacher's name was Kenneth Mills, and and I had left that years years earlier. You know, I left that behind because I was sort of hiding after my wife's accident. I sort of uh, I felt really guilty about a lot of stuff, you know. So I ended up kind of giving up my power to the, the teacher, you know, and kind of go going through life, but not really claiming responsibility for my life, you know. So hence, you know, alcohol fit into that beautifully because you don't have to take responsibility for anything, you know. <laughs> but the whole time, like again, I I was still playing, and I was still, you know, a spiritual quote unquote guy. But I was actually with this lady Helen, who was a great 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 lady and a, you know we had our relationship was was really important a really important part of my life you know and and i remember you know being with walking down the streets with her in san in new york and i'm taught we had just come from this church you know and i'm talking all this spiritual stuff you know blah 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 and she looked at me and she said you're bullshit mm-hmm. you know you see you're talking all this stuff but look at how you're li- you look you're not living it yeah right yeah. you know and it was like Bam! That was that was the point for me. It's like when I realized, man, I'm bullshit. <laughs> you know, I, I'm far, forgive me for using that language, but you know, you're not you're not real. No, I know. I mean, it's it's it's, and you know, at, at 37, you know, I can I can honestly say that it's it, everyone has different experiences, but you know, in your heart, you know, if you're a fraud or whether you're you know towing that line, or if you, if you're if you're pra- right. if you're practicing what you preach, you can. I mean, part of it is that I can get a lot of stuff out of my system um, talking to you guys and getting this out into the uh, to the ethos. But, you know, at the end of the day, you also have to I don't know. I think I think the life experience of losing somebody close to you and then that um, uh, it's a powerful thing. And it's actually it's what's even more remarkable is that you that you were very despondent and then actually were able to ride out that storm, overcome it and keep grooving and now to the point where you're still actively involved playing incredibly holistic music yeah well and and i have to say during music was was always sort of my saving grace you know always being able to play and you know sometimes it wasn't much and but it was always I, the, the the spirit of the music kept me going a lot you know well we we got another piece of music here to play for you and then we'll uh, we'll come back and break it down okay Another test? No, you got this one. Life is a one-way road for all kinds of 
straight ahead here on the Jake Feinberg Show. Music brought to you by Abbott Taylor Jewelers and the Circle Tree Ranch. Thank you for your support. All right, Mr. Kentonall, what do you got? one-way row, but it gets pretty windy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, I was going to say, you just always got to go straight ahead. You got to keep do, got to keep moving forward. So uh, Best way out is through, you know? Uh, right, exactly. And, and I, <laughs> you know, as much as I regret not a, uh, I mean, can you talk about uh, playing in this, David Hayes was on bass, was that cut, uh, was there any overdubbing, or do you guys do that live, everybody in the studio, Herbie, yourself, everybody, can you paint that picture? Oh, is Victoria? Yeah. I, that was pretty much live. Yeah, we were all, we just played it live. What as was, far as I remember. Did you know who Herbie was at that time? You must, oh, absolutely. So, I mean, what was that experience? Had you played, you hadn't played with him before? No. I mean, I knew Mike Clark, you know, but I mean, I'd never, because I mean, I'd never, I'd never met Herbie before. So, yeah, all of a sudden you're in the studio with Herbie Hancock because, well, it's kind of, Fun and a little intimidating, obviously, but you're there, so I guess you're supposed to be there, you know. <laughs> but it was, I, you know, I, I'd have to really jog my memory, but I, I just remember, I mean, I really look forward to hearing that again because I have no clue what we even did at this point. You but have no idea it was how that nas- works. Yeah, you know? this is this is uh, this is like uh, this is one of those albums. I, mean, I don't think I've ever heard. I mean, he did some work with the Pointer Sisters, but that was totally different. This was like. I've never heard Herbie play music like that, you know? Uh, and even though at the time he was also doing M1, M1 Bishi, which was like, you know, 20-minute uh, yeah. minute Space Jams. You mentioned Mike Clark, but what about, uh, did did you know Dean Chapperlees? No. Yeah, he was, so I'm trying to figure, I'm trying to figure out the, the how you originally met David Garibaldi, because I know that he was playing in a, in a band called Reality Sandwich down on the On Broadway with Mike Clark. We went to junior college together. Where was that? In Chabot and Hayward, Hayward, California. So can you talk about how you met Garibaldi and, and, and how your relationship uh, grew from there? Well, we met in junior college, and, you know, we were obviously studying with our teacher, G, Mr. Gene Graves, and, you know, we, so we were in school together. And that was a period where we were like, you know, still are, and at that time, really good friends, hung out a lot, you know, played together. In fact, there's this picture, if I can find it. Remember Please. Rich versus Roach, that famous Oh, album? yeah, 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 yeah. Dave, Dave and I took a picture <laughs> with our two drum sets together. If I can find that, I'll send that to you. No, you need to find that, man. I mean, because he <clears throat> talked... we were, yeah. you know, we just met in college and played, and at that time, he was, I was like, you know, the jazz guy and, you know, listening to Tony Williams and, you know, going for that kind of stuff and dave was checking out bernard Purdy and you know really starting to hone his craft as a you know as a great f- funk drummer you know so that was like uh you know and then he went into the air force after that but that was just out of out of college that's how we knew each other and i was gonna say did you spend time uh, you you mentioned that basement the transcendent experience with the gods in the basement with the horn player um <laughs> garibaldi talked about um playing just getting together with a drummer named Harvey Hughes who played with Cold Blood and, and they would uh, sit in, in one of their apartments for hours just working on different rhythms and beats. And and uh, did you guys get together and just work out stuff, original stuff? And, and even if not, why do you believe that your generation of musicians was so dedicated to individual sound? Whereas today it's so hard to depict, you hear somebody, you don't know who they are. Uh, but back then... You know, whether it was Mickey Roker 
or whether it was R. Blakey or Max Roach, Buddy Rich, you knew who was playing drums. Absolutely. So I'm just trying to figure out if, if you guys, part of the original, part of an individual sound to me comes from just experimentation. So did you guys get together and experiment a lot together? Um, not that I remember. I mean, we played in, 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 in at college, but I don't, I don't remember us really. We didn't really spend time working out stuff together. We played, but it wasn't, it wasn't that we didn't really dig in like that together. And the only thing that I can think of is that period, um, it was just wide open, you know, and there was a lot of, a lot of stuff hadn't occurred yet. You know, like now, there's like the sound is so much, you know, YouTube and this and that and iTunes and da-da-da-da-da, you know, you hear so much, you're influenced by so many sounds. And in those days, I think we were influenced, but I, I think also it was just, there was a wide open field. And it was a very creative time, you know, in America, you know, it's like, and, and there was the sense that you could go for it. You know, there was all sort of like this... Um, I don't know exactly how to say it, like this unsung request for you to find yourself musically. Mm-hmm. You know? What about... Uh, Encourage. You... And, every, you know, people played together. That was the other thing that was great. We got together and played with so many different bands and different people. You want to come over and play? Oh, absolutely. You know, there was a lot of that back then. Way more than now, I think, you know, but... I'm sure it's happening somewhere, but at that time, people just got together and, like you say, work stuff out, try things, experiment. You know, anything was possible was the feeling, you know. Absolutely. I, you know, in our remaining moments here, um, I wanted to just uh, ask you about um, uh, in a lot of modern music. I mean, you could you could turn on FM radio uh, during the freeform period and hear a lot of different uh, music, uh, you know, it could have been yep. Se- Seals and Crofts or Steely Dan or... You know, it could have been anybody. And a lot of those studio cats, like Jim Keltner, those guys, those were they, they were jazz snobs. They were fanatic, fanatical yeah. jazz guys. And it, they played with dynamics. And yeah. I, I don't hear any dynamics in pop music today. Yeah. And I think that it's one of those things that uh, I'm just trying to identify the antecedents to figure out how we got here. And I point to the drum, drum machine, disco, yeah. cocaine, and... Uh, and the idea now that it's really more about how many followers you have on Twitter as opposed to whether you really are a good musician or not. And I, right. it, it, yeah. it, you know, I, I guess just just give me a little bit of encouragement aside from your own gigs um, that that give, give me a shining glimmer of hope that you see coming around the corner a, a new age of authenticity in in improvisational music. And you can say well, you can say I, no. Again, what we're doing is definitely big time dynamics, big time listening. And I've been hearing a lot of new artists, you know, that are playing music that's absolutely beautiful and amazing, and totally deep in the spiritual pocket, full of dynamics and meaning. You know, so I mean, I think the it's like anything, you know. The media is such that, you know, there's so much stuff that you have to wade through. You know, the the loud stuff usually gets heard first, you know, but there's a lot of really great musicians and great, you know, great beings that are bringing forth some fabulous new music that, you know, I mean, it's just, it's happening. I can't name anybody right off the top here, but it's it's happening. There's a lot of great music happening and sounds that we've never heard before and rhythms we've never heard before and all kinds of stuff. So you you're playing with John Marshall, 
John Marshall, yeah, he's an absolutely fabulous percussionist. Too. Yeah, I'm trying to how how long how 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 long has his career been? I mean, does he go back to your generation or is he younger? Oh yeah, no, he yeah he's you know about the same age. He goes way back. I mean, he yes, yeah, God, who was his? Oh man, I just he just said it the other day. I can't remember. I'm going to need to get a hold of that cat because uh, no, there there was a Jack Marshall that played with Shelly Mann, but he was a guitar player. Uh, John Marshall, you would love. He's a brilliant. He's a great musician, a great guy. Yeah. Big heart, big spirit, and and a teacher. You know, and he's got the gift of gab. He's he, he'd be a <laughs> phenomenal interview with you. No, we're, he's we're fun to talk. Well, you about. you did pretty darn well, man. We cooked for an hour here, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I know this came out of the blue. Um, I got to tell you though, I mean, I started uh, less it'd be five years in January. Uh, I didn't really start hitting on the musicians uh, till about three months in. Uh, and a lot of cats like Pat Martino and Junie Booth, Alphonse, uh, Alphonse, uh, yeah. Alphonse Muzon, uh, yeah, all yeah. these guys, Henry Franklin, so many heavyweight guys, um, uh, not pop guys, but heavyweight guys, uh, unsung characters, helped me find my voice to the point where, uh, you know, now it's a it's a thriving show, really not about theory, but about philosophy, wisdom, and love, and and uh, uh-huh. now you're now you're part of it, Kenton Alpha. <laughs> I really pre- yeah, I really appreciate. Well, it. you've touched me in a very deep way, and I'm I'm really honored, and I mean, really really touched that you thought of me and called me. I'm I'm kind of blown away here. So, well, just send me do me a favor, it. send me your your address, and I'll mail you out that uh, copy of. You still have a vinyl player to play Victoria on? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm mean, gonna find something. I yeah, guess. you're gonna have to find something because that. But uh, yeah, I'll send <laughs> I'll send you a copy of that because I'll tell you. That's why I fa- that's why I found you and uh, and I knew somehow we'd get into the Doc Ellis eleven nine stuff and I'm glad we did um, and right. uh, so thanks for taking the time man we'll be in touch Jake I appreciate it man thank you very much have a beautiful day you too all right Bye-bye. that's Bye. it this is the Jake Feinberg show and we'll see you all in a little bit.